Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy New Year from the DSR Network. We hope you had a safe and happy holiday season. We're excited about our plans for 2022, which will include more member content, exciting partnerships, and programming expansion. To celebrate what we hope to be a successful 2022, we are offering $2 off a monthly membership or $20 off an annual membership. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code DSR2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash DSR member and use code DSR2022 at checkout. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. This week, I'm in New York City. We are joined today by a cast of our favorite characters from across America. In Washington, D.C., we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello, David. And in Alexandria, Virginia, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And in sunny California, I think, I'm not sure, we have with us Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And somewhere, New York or Washington, I'm not 100% sure, we have our friend Evelyn Farkas, former congressional candidate, recently a commentator, really interesting column, will come to soon. How are you, Evelyn? Good. How are you, David? Very good. Good to talk to you. So the topic today, I think, is going to be necessarily Ukraine. Let me start in a way I don't normally start, but I'll start with The fact that I spent most of last week going around Washington, D.C., talking to senior officials about Ukraine, I would say that I came away with a few impressions. And one is that the administration thinks it's more likely than not that the Russians will invade and that of the scenarios they've looked at, and they've looked at scenarios that have ranged from sort of small surgical bites being taken out of Ukraine by the Russians to massive invasions from the South and the East and the North, including potential kind of lightning strikes from Belarus down into Kiev, or a major push, not just of the 100,000 troops at the border, but that could involve another 100,000 troops rapidly called up straight across Ukraine to the middle, all with the objective of forcing the Ukrainian government to say it'll never join NATO, and possibly to grant 
a degree of autonomy to eastern regions of the country so that they can be more easily in the sway of the Russians and uh, that the central government is weakened. And they're preparing for these eventualities and they are doing so, including a you know, massive diplomatic campaign, not just with the Russians, but with NATO. It already, is, as those of you who follow these things know, includes more forward deployment of NATO troops in countries with borders on Russia, sending lethal military supplies to the Ukrainians, European Union putting together a $1.2 billion package for uh, Ukraine financial aid. There are some divisions within the EU, but according to the officials I've spoken with, there's a high degree of resolve that the, the response be strong. And they have spoken very carefully, I think, from the smallest to the largest countries in NATO. And they don't want to repeat the mistakes of past administrations, some of which they were actually in. Now, that's what they say. I know there are a variety of different views on this. I'm going to turn to Evelyn first for hers, because she laid some of them out in this uh, column to which I referred. And then we'll go around the group. So let's, let's start the discussion with Evelyn. Well, um, thanks for having me on, David. In terms of explaining my approach to this, I was in the Obama administration, in the Pentagon, and then in the Situation Room with most of the people who are now making the decisions about our current response to Russia. And response is really the right word because Vladimir Putin engineered this crisis. He decided to put this pressure on Ukraine and the transatlantic alliance and importantly, the international community at this moment in time. And we can get into why that might be so. And so the administration said we're going to threaten sanctions on a level or or to a degree that we've never sanctioned before. So sanctions that will really hurt the Russian government's ability and the cronies, the Putin cronies ability to bank. We have threatened to send more assistance to Ukraine. And in response to urging from myself and other interested <laughs> Russia parties or interested hands, they have continued to publicly provide assistance to Ukraine. And now in response to Russia's most recent move to put forces into Belarus, they've actually announced that they're going to bolster through the NATO umbrella forces in the NATO territories to respond. The third component that I don't think they've done sufficiently to date is to go to the international community, so to go to the United Nations and to make the case about what Russia is doing here. Because, first of all, it, you know, as we know, in 2014, Russia altered borders in Europe for the first time using military force. And this is a violation of Article 2 of the UN Charter. It is the bedrock of the current international system, which keeps us all safe from another World War III. When Saddam Hussein tried this trick by annexing Kuwait, the international community rallied and essentially pushed him out of, out of Kuwait. But of course, we're dealing now with a nuclear armed power, so we're not going to use military force directly to get Russia out of Ukraine. But the challenge is still there. If we let Vladimir Putin have his way in Ukraine. And ultimately, what he wants is, an, is not a democratic country in Ukraine. He does not want that example for his people. He wants the autocratic, kleptocratic system that he has in Russia to be the same system that's in place in Ukraine and the entire 
area that he considers a sphere of influence for the Russian Federation. And until he gets his way, it will, if he gets his way in Ukraine, he will turn to other countries. And I've spoken too long, so I'll leave it at that for now. Not too long. A good frame. I'd like to go across the group, get their reactions to what I saw, what Evelyn saw. I, I will add that I think the expectation of senior U.S. officials is that if the Russians go in, they will try to keep it quick. They don't want to get bogged down in a long war with an insurgency that could be very, very difficult for them. And I do think, and I wrote something in the Daily Beast on this uh, yesterday, it's still up today, that there is a pretty strong likelihood that Russia has miscalculated that the divisions within NATO, which are real, will in the end result in a stronger NATO, a NATO that after 30 years of sort of being in search of a mission will have found its mission again. And that may actually include a NATO that also includes Sweden and, um, and Finland, and where the, the people who wanted to downplay the role will have been substantially undercut by the behavior of Putin. Having said that, Corey, what do you think? I share those judgments, David. I do think that both the Biden administration and the NATO allies have actually done pretty well in their national policies and in keeping a united front, it's really hard to keep more than 30 governments aligned to take concerted action. And I think the Biden administration, having identified early the movement of Russia's troops, uh, you know, sent Bill Burns to Moscow to make sure the Russians knew we knew it, sharing the intelligence with NATO allies, coordinating on a common sanctions policy. I think it's a bad idea as a general rule to tell your adversaries what you won't do in the way the Biden administration said they, that the United States would not fight to defend Ukraine. But I frankly think that's not so big a mistake in this instance, because after the humiliating debacle of abandoning Afghanistan, I don't think it would have been plausible anyway and may have made other threats less credible. And I think they're doing a really good job of helping a fledgling German government. Remember, none of these people have had policymaking jobs in the last 16 years in Germany. And they're, they've got a several coalition government coming together. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Germans are making mistakes, but they're moving the right direction. And Secretary Blinken going to Berlin, not just for the consultations, but to give a public speech about why free societies should object to what Russia's doing. I think those are all really good moves. And I agree with your bottom line, David, that if the Russians do invade Ukraine again, they are going to end up with a NATO that has troops positioned to protect the eastern borders of the Baltic states, Poland, and probably even Romania and Bulgaria. If Putin's such a genius, how is that outcome in his interests? <laughs> yes. I think there's a consensus among close Putin watchers that he's actually not a good strategist. He is a bit of a tactician, but a genius? No. Rosa, what do you think of where we are? Oh, 
in a dangerous place. I mean, I don't have a, a whole lot to add other than my, you know, my biggest fear is that Putin backs himself into a corner that he feels he he can't get out of except through more aggression, you know, that that he puts himself into a situation where anything he does other than more aggression, he feels will be perceived within within Russia as a retreat and he can't afford to do that. That's my fear. And I think the challenge for the US and the challenge for for NATO and for the EU is to try to simultaneously let him know that there are, as as uh, as the diplomats like to say, that there are off ramps, you know, that there are ways out of this that will let him save face while at the same time, you know, being tough enough that he doesn't think, oh, there are a bunch of wimps. They're going to let me get away with whatever I want. And that that's I mean, we've talked about this before. It's an extraordinarily difficult tightrope to walk to sort of be tough enough to let him know that there really are consequences that he really should not put himself in the position of having to face, but not so bellicose on our part that he feels like then he has to respond with increased aggression. And I, I think we're doing, as as you have said, as Corey has said, Evelyn, we're doing about as well as it's possible to do, given that this is an extraordinarily difficult situation and given that we don't really know what is going on in his mind. Um, you know, we really don't. We, we, we know what he wants, but we don't know what price he's willing to pay to get it. I'm really glad that I'm not Tony Blinken, quite frankly. I'm really glad that I'm not Joe Biden right this minute. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, in other circumstances, they're all admirable people to be. But at this moment, I do not envy them at all. It's, it's an extraordinarily difficult situation. The only thing I, I did want to a little bit disagree with my friend Evelyn on is, you know, I don't know that I would frame this as the U.S. needs to protect the, the U.N. charter-based system and the international legal order. Because from Putin's perspective, and he's not completely wrong to feel this way, it's, it's hypocritical on his part, but it's not completely wrong. We have also flouted those very same charter prohibitions on uh, uh, aggressive use, and use of force inside sovereign territories of other states, specifically and particularly with the invasion of Iraq in, in 2003, which most legal experts will agree was not exactly legal. And then again, in terms of how we handle the whole Kosovo situation, which from Putin's perspective, from Russia's perspective, was in effect changing international borders through the use of force. Now, those that description is tendentious. And we could say, well, wait a minute. No, not exactly. It's a little bit different. And we're not we wouldn't be wrong to say that. But but I also think that we, we are not exactly blameless in turn when it comes to respecting UN charter prohibitions on the use of force by any stretch. And that doesn't mean, you know, just because we're not blameless doesn't mean that we have to now say, oh yeah, okay, never mind. The whole thing is stupid. You get to do what we got to do what we want. You get to do what you want. Because I think you are absolutely right that that way lies, you know, total chaos, uh, you know, and 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 potentially much broader conflict. But I think that the trick is to sort of figure out one of the challenges in the international legal order in general is sort of figuring out what level of illegality disguised as legality we can all accept in order to sort of allow the system not to fall apart by being such sticklers that we end up in a conflict every time there's any kind of infringement. You know, and, and I don't think we I think we need to be very careful there. Because I think we have created, we have been part of creating a situation 
in which we ourselves have contributed to the to the fraying of those very norms that we're now rightly upset that Putin is challenging in an even more egregious way. And that's part of what makes it so hard to handle. And part of the reason that I, you know, I, I think I think a better con- to me, I guess a better conversation to be having is one that says, okay, none of us is entirely without sin here, but instead of just saying, so everybody gets to break the rules, how do we think about respecting self-determination? How do we think about respecting lines that are there now? And, and you know, I think in some ways the self-determination point is, is probably our stronger argument than the sovereignty argument, given our own past actions at this point. So, Ed, I, I think in some respects, Putin has miscalculated. I think he's miscalculated about NATO and divisions within NATO. I think he's miscalculated about the United States. And there's several reasons for that. He may have looked at Afghanistan and said the U.S. is in retreat. He may have looked at every U.S. administration since the Iraq war and said the U.S. is in retreat. But he's also tested each U.S. administration. When he went into Georgia in 2008, the response was, hesitant. Ultimately, there was a kind of a clear response and Gandhi went to Eastern Europe and they moved some missiles and so forth, but much more limited than what we're seeing here. The Obama response was, by most measures, except maybe Ben Rhodes on MSNBC, kind of weak, indecisive, weren't sure really what we wanted to do when Putin went into Crimea. Of course, Trump was worse. And, you know, you look at Trump, And, you know, it's really striking to remember that in 2020, in the middle of 2020, Trump suggested withdrawing a third of U.S. troops from Germany. And, you know, where would we be in that circumstance? It does make me wonder, by the way, David, if Putin isn't kicking himself and thinking, that was my moment to invade Ukraine. And why did I not take it? Right. It could have been or it could have been in July the year before when Trump said, hey, let's not give that aid to Ukraine. And uh, withheld congressionally approved aid, which ultimately led him to be impeached. But, you know, so here comes Joe Biden, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you know, Joe's old and is he strong and whatever. And yet the response from Biden seems to me to be swifter, broader, deeper and stronger than he's gotten from any of the three administrations. That's a bit of a surprise. What, what do you think of it, Ed? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I'd share almost everybody's views that. Biden has so far played this relatively well with a not brilliant hand given natural European divisions. I think what I just picking up on previous administrations and indeed on earlier in this administration, um, Trump, of course, suborned, tried to suborn um, Vladimir Zelensky to, to provide dirt on, on Biden and got himself impeached for it. So there was extraordinary bad faith in terms of US Ukraine relations in spite of the best efforts of, of some of uh, America's foreign service officers during the Trump years. And I think that had a warping effect on, you know, what there is of Ukrainian democracy. But the Biden administration didn't show any great interest or any great priority in what was happening in Ukraine for most of its first year. And we got the situation where Zelensky is making moves that are stoking Putin's paranoia, giving him pretexts to move in and to saber rattle, passing laws that are punishing Russian speakers, not following up, uh, basically abandoning any attempt to pass, to enact the, to enforce the 
Minsk II agreement, which included a federated Ukraine, which would have some autonomy for the eastern Donbass um, region, and is therefore helped create uh, the situation where Putin's providing himself with pretext to do this. No justification for what Putin is doing, still less for anything he might do. And I share the consensus, he probably will. But it does, it does give us, in, in the words our friend David Sanger uses and, and Rosa cited, an off-ramp here, that if we want Putin to climb down from, from where he is, the best chance of doing that, I'm not saying it's a likely chance, but the least bad chance of doing that is to get back to Minsk too, to give him a face-saving way of climbing down without looking to be weak. We never intended Ukraine to join NATO, nor Georgia to join, to join NATO. We put them in a forever waiting room. It is no concession for us to say that Ukraine will not join NATO for 20, 25 years, as others have suggested. I think there are creative diplomatic off-ramps here that I hope behind the scenes the Biden administration is pursuing. i just make one more point. I agree with most of what Evelyn said. I did want to pick up on one, one thing in, in your very interesting piece, Evelyn, that you wrote in um, One Defense about there was a line that I disagreed with, and I sort of reread it because I knew we were going to discuss it on this podcast, where you say we must not only condemn Russia's illegal occupations of Ukraine and Georgia, but we must demand a withdrawal from both countries by a certain date and organize coalition forces willing to take action to enforce it. That really, really sort of brought me up cold. That, that to me is a, a, direct, a direct war situation between the world's two main nuclear powers. Are you, would you stand by that? Have I, am I missing? No, so I, I, I should have added more text in there. I was rushing to give it to the editor. So when I say a coalition of the willing to get Russia to roll back, I did not intend that we use military force to get Russia to roll back. I do believe that Russia needs to be rolled back from Ukraine and Georgia at some point in time. The outcome on Crimea must be a negotiated outcome. I'm not going to say what, what I think the final disposition of Crimea should be, but that is a complicated scenario where it needs to be negotiated. There's not even a negotiation about it. In the Obama administration that I was part of, we did the right thing right away off the bat, condemning Russia for what it did, annexing. And I think that's to get back to what Rosa said earlier. It's the annexation. It's the annexation. Yes, you have to draw a line somewhere. We didn't annex Iraq. We didn't. I mean, OK, a long time ago, we annexed parts of Mexico. But, you know, after World War II, we said no more annexation using military force. And I think that's the thing that's so dangerous, because that's what led to World War II. And if, if Putin gets away with annexing Ukraine, well, the Hungarians will raise their hand and say, excuse me, there's a part of Ukraine where we had Hungarian minorities and we want that. And by the way, there are four other countries with Hungarian minorities and we want to annex those parts back to Hungary, too. So it's the annexation where I personally would draw the line. And, and I think it's important. And we did it with Iraq. And in that case, yes, we used force to roll them back. In this case, we have to use sustained pressure. We have to contain Russia and we have to put pressure on them to eventually roll back as they did, frankly speaking, when it comes to the Baltic states, because legally the situation with the Baltic states was very different. So I do think, unfortunately, that that part of my op-ed came off sounding like 
I was in favor of using military force against nuclear powered Russia, which is not the case, but it's the principle. And if the principle is important enough, then we need to put on a better diplomatic effort. And I don't understand why leaving aside the secretary general, you know, where is he and why is he not saying more and doing more? Our president, the leaders of the, of, uh, frankly, Stoltenberg, you know, others, they should go to the United Nations and make speeches and make it clear to the global community what's at stake here, because it's not just about Ukraine and, and Europe and the transatlantic community. China's watching this very closely. And of course, many other countries are watching to see whether we're weak in general. Well, I, I think that's a helpful perspective, and I think you should thank Ed for allowing you to clarify the uh, <laughs> thank you, that Ed. point because I I, I think it uh, it strengthens the piece. I'll just say two things quickly before we take our little break, and one is with regards to Ed's point about an off ramp. Personally, I just want to, and it's a personal view, but my personal view is any off ramp that makes it look like Putin's threat of the use of force has gotten us to take Ukraine and NATO off the table. Is an should be a non-starter. Some private discussion, something behind the scenes that may, that may, that may be worth discussing. But Putin can't gain because of what has happened here, or we've got we've got a long-term problem. And as to Evelyn's point about annexation, annexation is bad. But I would say that in my discussions with senior people, many of whom were your colleagues, Evelyn, as you pointed out, annexation is not necessarily what they expect here. It's possible. It's possible they may seek some small annexation, the land bridge to Crimea. It's possible they may want to seek more control over regions in eastern Ukraine. But another possibility is they may seek, as the British suggested, a change of government, or they may seek to coerce the government into certain kinds of agreements. And those kind of things ought to be off the table, too. That's inappropriate under, under international law. In any event, Evelyn, this is going to be going on for a while. We hope you will come back and join us again. I know you've got to go right now. And I know those of you who are listening to us for free and who have not yet become members are going to have to go right now. We hope you will become members. Crises like this are precisely where I think we can add the most value. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member, and you can listen to the last third of each one of these things. And we've got some very interesting things to say then. For those of you who are members, we'll be back in one moment. <laughs> 